Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for that truth. You are the great I Am. You're everything in our lives. You're our hurt healer, our storm deliverer, our wind calmer. You're our peace bringer, Lord. We thank You for that changeless truth that You're there with us in the midst of our storms, in the midst of whatever we're going through. You're there and You control the winds and the waves around us. Father, give us faith to always remember that. To remember that You are our Deliverer, the Master of everything in our lives. Open the eyes and ears of our hearts now, Lord, to hear and grasp and apply Your Word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no doubt if you've been following the news lately, you've heard or seen or read about Malaysian Flight 370, right? This mystery airplane that for coming on three weeks now, no one can seem to find. And there's been so many conspiracy theories. We've heard all about the pilots and their skill set and their possible intentions and motives. And, and this week we... We heard news that there was strong mathematical evidence, right? That the plane crashed somewhere in the Indian Ocean. And it's tragic. It's tragic. And it takes us back to about five years ago when we witnessed another airplane tragedy in the making. It took place on Thursday, January 15, 2009 in New York City. It's just another regular, ordinary day in New York. But by evening, everyone was talking about a miracle. Flight 1549, regular U.S. Airways trip out of LaGuardia, headed towards Charlotte, North Carolina, was being piloted by Chesley Sullenberger III, affectionately known to his colleagues and friends as Sully. His hometown is, is right next door in Danville, California. And he did all the usual checks. Everything was fine on the Airbus A320 when it took off. But shortly right after takeoff, it ran into a flock of Canadian geese. Now, one goose in a jet engine is, is a problem. A flock was a tragedy. It was disastrous. So almost at once, both engines immediately shut off. They were severely damaged. They lost power. And the plane was heading north over the Bronx, probably the most heavily, densely populated area of the city. So here's Captain Sullenberger. He had to make several major decisions in an instant if he was going to save the lives of the people on board, let alone his own life and those of the crew members. There were a couple of local airports he spotted nearby, small ones, but he, he couldn't be sure of making it that far. There was the option of trying to set the plane down on the New Jersey turnpike, but with all the cars and, and drivers there, who knows what would happen. He would endanger their lives, certainly. So it left one option, the Hudson River. Now, trying to crash land a plane on water is near impossible. Any pilot will tell you that. One small mistake. Catch the nose wrong or one of the wings slightly wrong 
and the plane will tumble like a gymnast before sinking. The records tell us he had between two and three minutes to decide what to do and and set the plane down somewhere. And in those two to three minutes, he had to pull off the following. He had to do the following vital things, along with a host of other things that we amateurs wouldn't understand. He had to shut down the engines. He had to set the right speed so the plane could glide as long as possible without power. This is very difficult. Fortunately, Sully was also a gliding instructor. He was extremely well-skilled and experienced at this. He had to get the nose down to maintain speed. He had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. He had to activate the ditch system, which would seal all the vents and, and valves to make the plane as waterproof as possible for the landing. Most importantly, he had to fly and glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so it would come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. And having turned off the engines, he had to do this using only battery-operated power and an emergency generator. Then finally, after making the left-hand turn, he had to straighten the plane from the tilt of that sharp turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side. And finally, he had to pull the nose back up, but not too far, to land straight. That could certainly have turned out differently. Had it been a less experienced less skillful pilot, we'd be speaking today of memorializing a great tragedy. But not that day. Not with Sully at the helm. He was, we're told, a pilot's pilot. He taught other pilots courses on leadership and decision-making in a crisis. With him at the helm, because of his leadership, his skills, his calm, his experience, he set that plane down on the Hudson River. He was the last one out. He went up and down the length of the cabin to make sure everyone got out safely. All passengers, all crew members, 154 of them were safely rescued and live today to tell the story. Every one of them said they feel so fortunate, so blessed that that Sully was the, the captain of their flight that day. Now, can you imagine for a moment how ridiculous it would have been for the passengers of that plane upon takeoff to go up to Sully and and tell him, you know what? We've got this. You can go back, go, go to the back of the plane, get some rest. You know, we don't need your leadership, your experience for this. We've played a couple of flight simulator games. You know, we're pretty good. With technology these days, these things fly themselves pretty much anyway, right? We can handle it from here. Go get some rest. To have a master pilot on your plane and tell him he's not needed, well, no one, no one would be that foolish, would they? It happened. It happened on a still and quiet evening on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Turn with me to our text this morning or look up on the video screens to Mark chapter 4. We're going to hear an amazing story today about a little boat, a sudden storm, and the master of the wind. First, for some context, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. 
The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So here's this setting. And Jesus spent all day teaching the people. He spoke to them in parables and stories they could understand. He told them the parable of the sower and the seeds. He told them the, the story of having faith the size of a mustard seed. That if you have faith, even that small, that's all that he needed. He taught them lesson after lesson. He taught them all about God's kingdom. And then finally, evening had arrived. And we read in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and, and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. We're going to look at this story today, this miracle. We're going to look at it in four parts. The crisis, the cry, the command and the calm. And first, the crisis. Jesus had been teaching all day. And, and the disciples, for their part, spent the whole day of ministry largely as bystanders. They were listeners, just like the rest of the crowd. They listened along, but there was nothing they could really contribute. So finally at evening, Jesus asks them to cross over to the other side. And did you catch the language in verse 36? Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. They took Jesus along as their guest, as their passenger. I can imagine when Jesus made the, the request, their ears perk up. Ah, sailing. Yeah, this is something we can do. Many of them were seasoned fishermen. They spent their lives on the water. They may not have known their way around parables and lessons of God's kingdom, but put them in a boat on the sea, they were home. This was familiar. This was expected. This was comfortable. This is where they excelled. Lord, Lord, take a nap. We've got this. You've done your part. Now leave this up to us. We're experts, Lord. This is our domain of expertise. You're riding, Lord, with master sailors. And it all starts out as planned and doesn't it always. The water is calm and beautiful. The air is still, a beautiful sunset on the Galilean horizon. But then something goes wrong. And take note that a storm of this magnitude, such that the, the waves are over the boat, it doesn't happen in a split second. It may be fast, but there are warning signs. 
There were a development of signs, I'm sure. The winds pick up. Well, nothing we haven't seen before. We've been here many times. Remember, we're experts. The waves start to get bigger. we're, We're still good. We're still good. The wind grows stronger. Their little boat's really moving now. They're concerned, but still in control. We'll get through this. We've, we've got each other, remember? Master sailors. Well, it continues to progress, and verse 37 tells us the waves grew so large they broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And their little problem turns into a big crisis. And it, it's, it's strange for me to call this a crisis. It didn't have to be. In my opinion, a crisis is a problem for which you have no foreseeable solution. If you have a debt and you have no money, that's a crisis. If you have a debt, but you have the money in hand to pay the debt, not a crisis. If if you have an illness to which there's no remedy, that's a crisis. If you have an illness and you have the medicine to make you better, not a crisis. If you're in the middle of a storm, but you have the maker and master of the wind in your boat. If he's your captain, that's not a crisis. That's just an exercise of faith. The disciples mistake was that they made Jesus their passenger, not their captain. They just took him along for the ride. He wasn't their captain. He wasn't steering their ship. And their crisis didn't have to be a crisis. How often, how often we make the same mistake, don't we? We take Jesus along in our lives. We put him in the stern of our ship. Tell him to take a nap. Lord, we'll wake you up when we need you, but we've got this. Have you been there? Are you there today? in the middle of a crisis because Jesus isn't piloting your ship? Is He simply your insurance policy if all goes wrong? Is He your last resort? Do you call on Him when you first tried everything else and failed so miserably you can't begin to dig yourself out? What could have been a simple test of faith, an example of what He had just taught them, Faith as small as a mustard seed. It was a lesson in that. It became a crisis. It became a life-threatening crisis. And friend, don't get there. Don't just take Jesus along for the ride in your life. Make Him the captain. Make Him the decision maker. Let Him lead. Let His words and His principles and His statutes become the policies for how you live your life. Go to Him first. Go to Him immediately. Go to Him every time. There's a well-known bumper sticker. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It says, God is my co-pilot. And I'm sure it's very well-intentioned. But if God's only your co-pilot, not your pilot, and you're at the control of the wheel, look out. I don't want God as a passenger on my boat. I don't want him as a co-pilot. 
I want him as the sole pilot of my vessel. Amen. Oh, how those disciples must have regretted the org chart of their little boat that day. A nice evening boat ride turns into a life-threatening crisis. And our master sailors find themselves in over their heads, literally and figuratively. Part two, the cry. Here they are at the end of their rope, moments before they perish. And we read in verse 38, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Wow. We're going to mess things up with our own decisions and choices. We're going to leave God in the back seat, on the back burner, and then we're going to blame Him for not caring about the circumstances of our lives. Lord, don't you care that I'm a drug addict? How did you get there? Why didn't you reach out to him for help sooner? Lord, don't you care that I'm in debt? I'm floundering. How did you get there? Why didn't you call on me sooner? Lord, don't you care that my kids are lost in the world? How did we get here? Why didn't you bring them to me sooner? Don't believe the devil's lies, friend. Don't let him twist your perspective. It wasn't the Lord who made the bad decisions for you. It was you. It was me. It's not time to blame God for a lack of care. We were at the wheel. It's not time to blame your friends for turning their backs on you. It's not time to blame your family for wrong advice. It's time to get help. Blame is one of the greatest tools the devil uses to prevent us from getting God's help. He gets our minds so busy with blame. Who can we blame for what I'm going through? We're paralyzed. See, if we can get so busy mired in blame, then we can never get the help to get better. Do you know how many problems blame has solved in the history of humanity? Zero. Never once has blame ever solved a problem. You don't need to find a new source of blame. You need to go to the source of healing. Lord, take a back seat. You can come along for the ride if you'd like, but I've got this. Lord, I think I know how to navigate my life's problems. I've got the strength, Lord. And and if that fails, I'll rely on my wisdom. I know a lot. And you know what? If that fails, I'll cling to my experience. I'm seasoned, Lord. I've been through a lot. And if that fails, well, I've got friends. I've got the right friends. They can help me, Lord, through the storms of life. They're smart. They've accomplished a lot in their lives. Look how successful they are, Lord. And if they fail me, well, I'll cling to my toughness, my perseverance. That'll get me through. And if that fails, then I'll point my finger at you and blame you, Lord. Don't you care? How much easier life would be if we turned to the Lord at the first sign of trouble? How much easier would it have been for the disciples to turn to Him when they first noticed a little bit of wind? They waited till the last possible second and then gave up. 
after just hearing about faith the size of a mustard seed, after experiencing what he did in their lives and for others. Their memory was short. Their timing was poor. Their approach was worse than poor. But if there's one thing they did right, it's that they finally went to the only person who could solve their problem. You have to give them credit. In the end, they went to the right person. And some of us never get there. We spin and we spin and we flounder and we flounder and we never call on Jesus. The disciples finally figured it out. They finally went to him. They cried out to him. Lord, we're going to die. We're going to die if you don't help us out. They reached the end of their rope, the end of their knowledge, the end of their experience, the end of their know-how. It mattered not. Are you there yet, friend? Have you reached the end of your efforts and are ready to let God take over? How much time have you wasted trying to make things work out? Trying to force things to work out? Trying to make the pieces make sense in your life? Ask yourself, Isn't it enough? Hasn't it been long enough? Are you still trying? Still think you're strong enough? Tough enough? Resourceful enough? And friend, God is waiting on the sidelines. You have the master and maker of it all waiting on the sidelines to step in, to help, to fix, to heal, to calm, to restore. So ask yourself, what will it take for me to resign my will and my churning and my efforts and take all the broken pieces of my life and turn them over to Him? How much more wasted time? How many more sleepless nights? God waits patiently for you, friend. Call on Him. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And when we earnestly cry out to Him, you know what? He has never failed. He never will fail to answer that call. Part three, the command. So often in the storms of our lives, when we finally reach the end of ourselves and we cry out to God for help, we do something. We, we, we predefine the method of his answer. Sometimes we do this implicitly. We have unspoken expectations for how God is going to fix things in our lives. And other times we explicitly ask God to fix things in a certain way. Solve our problems this way. Don't put God in a box. We serve a God who loves to surprise us. Who has unlimited resources far beyond our wildest imaginations. He knows the intricacies of our problems better than we know them ourselves. And you know what? He knows what solutions are best for us. Not just now, but in the future. Around the bend that we can't see. Lord, Lord, I have a debt. Please provide the money. God may just answer by canceling the debt. Lord, I may be laid off. Please spare my job. God may just let you lose your job to get you a better one. 
Lord, the doctor says it might be cancer. Please, don't let it be. God may very well just walk you through that cancer and bring you out stronger on the other side of it. When the disciples finally went to Jesus for help, when they cried out to him, what do you think they were expecting? From their reaction, who is this? It certainly wasn't what happened. It wasn't what he did. Perhaps they thought he could quickly transport them to safety, get them quickly to the other side, speed up the boat. Maybe they thought he could get them into a stronger boat. We're told there were other boats there around them. Maybe they thought he would strengthen the boat they were in now to be able to withstand the storm. Would they ever, ever have thought that he would command the wind and the waves? That he'd speak to the wind? Never in a million years. Why doubt him, though? Why doubt him? In the previous three chapters, they watched him. They watched him drive out demons heal the sick and dying, eradicate leprosy. They saw him raise the paralyzed and make them walk with their own eyes right in front of them. And they forgot. And we make the same mistakes, don't we? We've seen him do so much. You think this storm is too much for him? You think this problem is too big for him? We limit God to how we think our problem can be fixed. This is the only solution that's going to work, Lord. You know what? God isn't limited by our previous experiences. Our small imaginations, our limited expectations. We serve a big God, friend. And in verse 39, we witness the command. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet. Be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Part four, the calm. The problem may have been building, but Jesus' solution came in an instant. The wind immediately stops blowing. That tumultuous sea, the waves are suddenly stilled. And the disciples have to pick their jaws up off the floor of that boat. And they're left dumbfounded. Despite all their preconceptions, despite their fears, despite any doubts they may have had, despite their poor memories, Jesus performs a miracle in a way they never dreamed possible. He commands the wind and the waves to be quiet and they immediately obey as all of nature always does with Him. He brings peace from the turbulence, quiet from the noise and calm from that raging storm. Jesus comes through once again. That's what He does. That's what He does. He's still in the business of doing that. When we turn over control to Him, He never fails to come through. He calms the storm. He spares their lives and He leaves them with this question. Where is your faith? I just taught you the lesson 
that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, I can do the rest. You just heard it. Where's your faith? You know, Jesus didn't want their expertise. He didn't want their strength. He didn't want their persistence, their perseverance. He's not asking that of any of us today. If you're in a crisis, if you find yourself in the center of the storm, He's not asking for your toughness today. He wants your faith. He wants your trust. Throw yourself upon Him. Trust Him. Rely on Him to take care of the storm for you. He's big enough. He's strong enough. Where is your faith? What a question. Ask yourself in all honesty today, where is my faith? In what am I placing my trust to get me through this life? Is it in your job? Your career? Is it in your family and friends? Is it in your 401k? Friend, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, then the storms of life are going to sink you. Because everything apart from Christ will fail. But if your faith is in Him, He'll calm the storms. He'll come through for you every time. And you you won't just hang on. You won't just survive. You will win. You want to know what winning is? We heard so much about winning in the past couple of years. Winning. You want to know what winning is? It's not just coming through the storm. That's survival. Winning is coming out stronger than you went in. And only Christ can guarantee that. Only in Christ do we have victory. Only in Christ are we assured of winning no matter how big the storm no matter how great the trial, no matter how impossible the circumstance may seem, only in Him will you find not just survival, but victory. So what are you going through today, friend? What storm has risen in your life and and taken hold of your heart? What fears have so filled your head that you can't even think straight anymore? It's time for a faith check. Where's your faith? Is it in yourself? your strength, your experience, your knowledge, your toughness, it's not enough. It's not enough to get you through. No matter how strong you think you may be, the storms of life will beat you. At some point, they will overtake you. The reality is that life is going to throw at you much more than you can handle in your own strength. You need a pilot. You need a better pilot. You need a master pilot. Who's who's your pilot this morning? Who's piloting your ship today? If there's one takeaway from this sermon, let it be this question. Ask yourself in all honesty, in all introspection, who is piloting my ship? Am I at the helm or have I turned it over to God? In 1871, Edward Hopper wrote a hymn, the words of which are so applicable to us today. And it described who is in control of his life. He wrote, Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll. 
hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from Thee. He knows the destination. He knows the direction. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, if you've never experienced His life-changing forgiveness, His life-altering salvation, don't wait another minute. Accept His forgiveness. Receive Him. Receive Him as Savior today. Turn over your heart and life to Him. And watch what He will do. He will never steer you wrong if you let Him pilot your ship. And dear believer, if He is your pilot today, then you know what? There's no need to panic. It's not a crisis. He is in control. He is still God. He is on His throne. And the storm will not bring you down. It might throw you about. It may rage against you with all its sound and fury, but you know what? It will not defeat you. You're in God's hands. There's no storm He can't handle. There's no wind He can't calm. No sea He can't still. There's no mountain in your path, no matter how big it may seem, no matter how ominous it may look, no matter how impossible you think it is. There's no mountain He can't move. Put your trust and your faith in Him today. An unknown author wrote, and we're going to close with this. Lord, I've never moved a mountain, and I guess I never will. All the faith that I could muster wouldn't move a small anthill. And I'll tell you, Lord, I'm grateful for the joy of knowing Thee and for all the mountain moving down through life You've done for me. When I needed help, You lifted me from the depths of great despair. And when burdens, pain, and sorrow have been more than I can bear, You have always been my courage to restore life's troubled sea and to move those little mountains that have looked so big to me. Many times when I've had problems and when bills I've had to pay and, and the worries and the heartaches just kept mounting every day, Lord, I don't know how You did it. Can't explain the, the where's or why's. All I know is I've seen mountains turn to blessings in disguise. No, I've never moved a mountain. For my faith is far too small. Yet I thank You, Lord of heaven, You have always heard my call. And as long as there are mountains in my life, I'll have no fear. For the mountain-moving Jesus is my strength and always near. Let's pray. Father, we come before You today and acknowledge that You are the Master. The Master of everything in our lives. The winds and the waves and the storms. You're the Master of the health issues we're going through. You're the Master of the financial situation we find ourselves in. You're the Master of child-rearing. The Master of marriage. The Master of relationships. You're the Master of our future, Lord. Whatever storm of life we're going through today, Lord, You're the Master of it. And so we turn to You. We're done on our own, Lord. We're done. We're done trying to steer our own boat through the troubled seas. We're done trying to be the captain of our own ship. We're done putting You in the stern of our ship. 
on the back burner of our lives, we want you to take over, Lord. Take the helm and take over. Only you can make sense of it, Lord. Only you can make sense of our lives and make peace from the storm and bring calm to the turbulence of our fears and our emotions. We give you your rightful place, Lord. Take center stage. Take center stage of our lives and grow our faith so that in every situation in life, we turn to you first and we turn to you immediately. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. How true it is. Great is thy faithfulness. When we turn it over to you, you have never and will never fail us. Thank you, Father. We love you and we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.